Hello again. Good morning and happy Sabbath. Oh, we can do better than that. Happy Sabbath. There you go. That's good. Two weeks ago, we had our Thanksgiving sermon, and the message at that time was a new world. How do we treat our fellow stranger that has come into our circle? How do we treat a stranger, right? That's what a new world was all about. And we were talking in that message, I talked about how the pilgrims and the Native Americans came together to have the first Thanksgiving meal. Not just meal, but the celebration lasted for three days. Remember that? Three days. And we also learned that we should treat strangers like how we treat ourselves. That was two weeks ago. Last week, the message was called A New World, A Coat for a Cold World because it focused on the story of Adam and Eve when they left paradise, a very perfect world, into a fallen world. And what did we learn in that message? It's that when God has us go from one place to another place, he provides our needs, just like he provided for Adam and Eve, where he gave the garments of skin to clothe them, right? That's because they were transitioning from the perfect world to a fallen world. And today, we continue with a theme, a new world. And the message today is called a soggy mess. A soggy mess. Hmm. I want you to think about your quirk with food. Do you have any quirky habits with food or any strange things with food? My brother-in-law, we share a quirk with sandwiches. My brother-in-law, Matt, who is married to my sister, uh, Eleanor. Eleanor and I are three years apart. So anyways, Matt, for all the time I've known him, especially when I first met him, I, I really quickly l- uh, learned to like this guy because he was so calm and athletic. So we could play sports together and stuff. But, but I loved his demeanor. He was always calm. He was not judgmental. He was patient with people, especially with my sister. If you know my sister, my sister uh, can be a hothead. If I can be a hothead, she's more like a volcano head, okay? That's my sister. So if anyone can tolerate my sister, then man, that guy must be an awesome dude, right? So that's Matt. Matt is that, is that, that guy that really reminds me of my dad, because my dad's the same way, calm and cool. No, not, not your dad. Matt Angier, not Matt Hamstra. So, but Matt Hamstra is a cool dude too. So anyways, back to Matt Angier, my brother-in-law. He, he was always cool and calm and rational until, until I went to visit him in Pittsburgh when they used to live there. That evening, we decided to go to Subway to get sandwiches and take it back home. Well, the problem with Subway is if you don't eat the sandwich there at the restaurant, the bread, ah, there you go, the bread gets soggy. So we uh, we got to their house, we went around the dining table, I took my sandwich out, I got a foot-long turkey, I still remember it to this day, and I unwrapped it. And then Matt unwrapped his too. And we both looked at those, um, our respective sandwiches, we both looked at our respective sandwiches with disgust. Because they put more mayo than I asked for. So my sandwich was drenched. And then Matt, 
who said, I want my olive oil and my vinaigrette on the side. It was put on his sandwich. So he tried to pick it up. Can you guess what happened next? It fell apart. And then he said this thing I never forgotten, and it's our sermon title today. He said to my sister, I'm not eating this soggy mess. And he, and he throws it down. I'm like, whoa, Matt, I've never seen this side of you before. And then Eleanor said, you have to excuse him because he doesn't know how to eat a sandwich. And then Matt said, well, no, it's a soggy mess. I can't eat it. The bread has fallen apart. So he took a plate and made a deconstructed salad with it, if you know what I mean by that. A soggy mess. Of course, I use this story as an illustration that life can sometimes become a soggy mess. It can sometimes become a soggy mess where perhaps it was your own doing, your own choices that you made that, you, that put you in that soggy mess. But then what happens when that soggy mess is done by others out of your control? What do you do then? How do you work with that soggy mess? So our message today focuses on a new world that literally got into a soggy mess. Because if you know Genesis chapter 9, verse 15 through 16, this is the story of the flood. We're coming at this point, the context of this story, we're at the end of the flood. The waters have receded and God has opened the doors of the ark and has told Noah and his family that it is now safe to leave the ark. And here is our key text today. It says, I will remember my covenant between me and you. It's God who's talking. God is talking to Noah and his family. I will remember my promise, my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a floody mess to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. Uh, Noah, I always want to say Moses. Noah had to go through a soggy mess for how many years? The Bible tells us, I think it was what, 150 years or 120 years? 120 years that the flood waters were, uh, was on earth. 120 years. Oh, uh, yeah, 40 days it rained, but 120 years the water stayed on the earth. So, hmm? days? It was 120 days? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? Let's go to Genesis. I am messing myself up. It says here in Genesis chapter 7, verse 24, the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. I did say years, didn't I? So days, regardless, days or years. They are prophetic. Thank you for showing grace to your pastor. So he experienced a soggy mess, this man named Noah. And his family. Now, you might ask yourself, how exactly did this all play out? What was the flood experience like? Can we even begin to fathom it? 
what I love about, uh, about this story is it gives us context. If we turn our Bibles to Genesis 7, verse 7 through 12, we get an idea of what this destruction, this soggy mess was really like. It tells us in this passage, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. And after the seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, the fact that that is very precise, that is telling us a date, it means that this is not some fabrication, that this is not uh, a parable, because some Christians, believe it or not, think that the flood story is a parable. But the fact that this is very precise, when the Bible gives us numbers like this, gives us a time of month, a time of year, it means that it actually happened. So at that time in Noah's life, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth. And then the floodgates of the heavens were opened and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Let that soak in. Pun not intended there. Let that soak in just for a while on what this must have been like in the time of Noah. This great flood. One thing I also want to point out is that some people, some people who are very cautious and taking the word of the Bible, they say, well, maybe this was not the whole world that was engulfed in water. Maybe it was just a pocket of land. Maybe it was just a certain area. The word here for earth is eretz. If you were to look, look this up in the, uh, in the Hebrew, eretz can mean land or surrounding ground, small pockets. It doesn't necessarily have to mean the whole earth. In our context, we read that and we see earth, we're thinking the whole globe, right? So then how do we know it's a whole deluge or a whole flood around the entire globe? It's because the word that's used for flood. Flood. And correct me, uh, Eric, I know you're brilliant in, in ancient languages. There's several words for flood, is there not? But the one word that they use for the great flood is mabul. And mabul means a great downpour of water. A great flood that has succumbed the entire globe. Now when we read this part, when it says that all the springs of the great deep burst forth, we're not talking about a little tiny geyser called Old Faithful. You might have been to Yellowstone before. You might have seen Old Faithful erupt every 30 to 45 minutes. Even then, that's a wonderful sight to see. But even then, Old Faithful has nothing in comparison to what happened here. So where are the floodwaters coming from? It's coming from underneath the earth and on top. Because it tells us it's coming from the heavens, the floodgates of the heavens were open, and the great uh, deep burst forth. What was that bursting forth? What was that like? I feel like all you need to do is go in the backyard of our state. Go anywhere in Colorado, Utah, Arizona. I believe there's strong evidence of a great flood. 
Now these pictures, uh, Bobby and I took these pictures in 2008. We got married in Red Rocks. And in 2008, on our way to moving to Michigan so I could start my studies at Andrews, we stopped here in Colorado to take, you know, we were feeling nostalgic. We said, after a year of being married, we need to stop back at, at Red Rocks. So we did. And the, these rocks have always fascinated me. But do you notice something about these rocks on how they are formed? If you look at the rocks, I wish I had a, a red pen, you'll see that the lines, the layers of the rocks are angled, right? My belief, they look like what, AJ? They, yeah, they're also red, right? Uh, what I believe happened is that these rocks were once flat, and the waters of the deep burst forth, breaking the land apart, where the very amphitheater now stands once used to be flatter land. If you were to look at this picture from a side angle or look at other, uh, uh, looking at other areas of Morrison, Colorado, you'll see how all of these rocks, if you line them up, my theory is they were all once one large piece of land. And they're just sticking out. Here's a picture that I found online. This is a stock picture. I didn't take this one. This one is a... It really looks like someone took a drone and went out. I love this picture. Because if you were to look at this picture, you, if you've ever been to Red Rocks, you, you know these two rocks. But what, I, what I've never appreciated is how they are really one big, massive rock. And when they had to build this, they, they tore into this so they can build the amphitheater. But look at it. You can see how the ground where the top surface was once this, right here, right? But then it changed because of the flood, AJ. You're right. Because of the great flood. Because of the waters from underneath, the deep waters from underneath burst forth. What a sight that must have been. I can't imagine what that site must have been like. I don't think even Hollywood couldn't do it justice if you've ever seen a story on Noah's life before. I don't think it can. Why am I bringing this up? Because, since we're talking about a new world and a, and a soggy sandwich, a soggy mess... It didn't look that way at first. You know, brothers and sisters, our life can become a soggy mess. And you might be thinking, well, Edre, why are we talking about such a horrific story during a time during December when we should be celebrating joy and the coming of Jesus? Because here's what I want to share with you all today. Even during Christmas holidays, we can experience a soggy mess. Because even during Christmas holidays, while the majority of us are celebrating the festivities and the gatherings of loved ones, there's someone out there who has suffered loss this past year, maybe even around the holidays, who are in a soggy mess, who are broken, 
whose world has turned upside down, whose world has, has torn apart. And you and I should remember those people. Especially in this Christmas holiday. When I was a chaplain, we used to celebrate something called Blue Christmas. Who's familiar with the Blue Christmas? It's not celebrated much often in our Adventist tradition or in our Adventist circle, but a lot of other Christians, they celebrate Blue Christmas for the one purpose of remembering the people who have died that past year. So, yeah, we would actually sometimes have blue trimmings on the Christmas tree, like blue, uh, what do you call that, garlands? So you're right, AJ, we would, we would use the color blue to, to remind us, to commemorate the lives that were lost that past, in that past year. So, so as I think about Blue Christmas, I think about people that we've lost through these past years. I remember our dear friend Tom Marquez, who died earlier this year. And we pray for his survived wife, Cindy. Cindy, if you're calling in right now, I just want to say you're in our hearts and in our minds. And I also remember Matt Teller, whose wife, Maida, just passed maybe, uh, I think a few years ago, two years ago, two, um, a year and a half ago, I should say. Whenever I meet with families who have suffered loss, the one thing they always say is, I'm scared of having my first without them, my first Christmas, my first birthday, my first walk around the neighborhood without them, my first meal at home without them. It's sad to be alone, is what they will say. Yeah. So let's take a look at this story. Continuing on with Noah's story in Genesis 9, verse 20 and 21, it says, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. That verse, or those verses, has a lot of things in it. There's a lot of things that we can unpack there. One of the things I want to bring forth today is asking the question, why did Noah get drunk? Why did he get drunk? If you were to um, research this, you will find several different answers that a lot of theologians have come to. The the top three answers is, number one, he inadvertently, by accident, got drunk because of old age. Well, what does that mean? It means that uh, after, before the flood, it's clear that he knew how to, how to cultivate a vineyard. He was a farmer. That's what he was, right? He knew that. He had that knowledge. But after the flood, oh, before the flood, people were also living a long time, up to several hundred years, right? Methuselah, 969 years, for example. And, and Adam was, I, I believe, above 900 years as well. And then after the flood, after the deluge, the lives of humans started to drop. And so some theologians believe that he got drunk by accident because he had a change in his physical nature. The same alcohol that he once drank, he couldn't tolerate it anymore, and therefore he got drunk. I can't buy into that theory because because the Bible tells me he lived... What does it tell us in 
in Genesis chapter 9, verse 28, or verse 29. It says that Noah lived 950 years and then he died. I don't think it had to be age that caused him to get drunk. Number two, the other explanation that some theologians believe is that stronger fermentation took place after the flood. <laughs> that, that grapes just become, became stronger. Once again, there's no, there's no context of proof in that. The extra sugar, most likely, yes. Number three, which I believe this is the reason why he got drunk. He was haunted and traumatized by the events of the flood. And that seems to be more correct if we were just to use context in itself. If we were to use context in itself, it tells us, let's read this again. Noah was a man of the soil who proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk. And what's the last phrase? He lay uncovered inside his tent. Now, Chappie and I, we've worked with many patients. Some of the patients I've worked with through the course of 10 years of being a chaplain have been patients in the psych ward. And when you work with patients in the psych ward who are who have a lot of chemicals inside their body, whether it's alcohol or other, some other substance that they have abused, they do things that seem very, what's the word I can use, uncommon for us. Some people will cut themselves up because of the trauma or the, the, the uh, events that have happened in their life. Others will walk around slapping their head I'm not saying this to make fun of them. I'm saying, I'm pointing this out that there is a, a very uncommon behavior when they have some type of substance abuse. And what Noah experienced here is he was laying uncovered inside his tent. So if he was drinking because the fermentation was stronger, he would have been clothed, I think. But the fact that this tells us he was uncovered in his tent, there had to be something in his heart, inside his mind, that was causing him to feel sadness, grief, anger perhaps. I don't know. It doesn't tell us exactly what he was experiencing. Dave. Every culture does. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. He was self-medicated. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. He was self-medicated. But it wasn't foreign to him. No. No, it and wasn't. If, and if the Bible says that, there was, that they were evil continuously, we see the effects of alcohol here in this hospital. Mm-hmm. What it does. And so... Thank you. Culture, every culture yeah. gets finished. I think you're only further proving the point. The point that this man who had, who had a fallen culture just like you and I have a falling culture. And he took something that he lived with and saw for a long time, and he carried it over after the flood. But here's the point I wanted to make, bringing it back to a blue Christmas, bringing it back to our world may sometimes fall apart, and we can be traumatized by that. We have the proof in that with Noah. Noah. 
I can't even begin to imagine what the deluge, what the flood event must have been like. And how changed the world was. How, the, how changed the world was. Now let me, let me drill this point right now. I want to drill this point right now. The point of seeing your family as you're trying to reach out to them, to appeal to them, to come into the ark with me. It's not just his sons and daughters that he reached out to or his wife. It was his cousins, his nephews, his grandparents, or perhaps. Well, no, it tells us Lamech was uh, passed already at that point. But he had family and friends, people dear to his hearts, to his heart, that he wanted to come into that ark. Yet they were stubborn. And when the door was finally closed and the water started to come, Witnessing your loved ones drowning, that's got to be some, some horrific things to see. Some things to, to witness. I'm trying to paint the picture here. Because our sinful world, our fallen world is a nasty place. And that is where you and I come in. That's where you and I come in. We can be the light that Jesus wants us to be for the people who have had fallen worlds in the past recent time. Their past recent time. Here's some, some thoughts on trauma. It tells us trauma can lead to an adulthood spent in survival mode, afraid to plant roots, to, to, plant, to plan for the future, to trust and to let joy in. It's a blessing to shift from surviving to thriving. It's not simple, but there is more than survival. When I read this quote, and sadly, the author is unknown, when I read this quote, it hit me at home. And why? It's because I was that very person who could not plan for a future, who had a hard time trusting and to let joy in. Something that happened to me at the age of 16, this is the first time I'm ever sharing this in a large group setting. I've only shared this with my wife and a few others in my life. When I was 16, I decided to skip school one day. Don't skip school, okay? I know we have young boys in here. Do not skip school. Behave. Be on your good behavior. I skipped school one day. I decided to skip school for the very reason to just play basketball with my friends. So we skipped school. We went across town in Houston. And to play basketball, this was going to be a bad part of town. But we always thought, hey, nothing's going to happen to us. And so here we are playing. And while I'm playing basketball, I'm at the top of the key. If you don't know the basketball term, top of the key means I'm at the top of the three-point line. Okay? I don't have the ball. My friend has the ball over there on the left side. And there's the guy that's guarding me right here. And he's down low. He's guarding me like this. Before you know it, we hear pop, 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 pop. You know what those pops are? Gunfire. Gunfire, where the boy in front of me, he must have been my same age of 16, gets caught right here in his head, drops down. He drops down. I'm frozen from what's happening. I see a pool of red crimson. You know what that is. A pool right in front of me. I am shocked. And all of this seems to be happening in slow motion. And I am just shocked. I don't know what to do. And my, one of my friends runs up and he tackles me while they're still popping going around us. And we bolt. He wakes me up 
from my, from my shock. He says, we got to run out of here, Dre. That was my nickname growing up, Dre, okay? Nowadays, I go by Ed or Eddie for the reasons that I want to cut ties with Dre because I didn't like what Dre was. Anyways, we took off. That left a 16-year-old boy traumatized, quiet, and shocked. I didn't feel like I could tell my parents because I didn't want them to find out. I didn't want them to, to what, I don't know, get mad at me, disown me. I was embarrassed. I was shocked. And on top of that, I didn't want to be asked by the police of what happened. So I had to sit with this pain. And if you knew me back then, I was the angriest kid. I was always head first. If, if there was anything ever that, that, ha- that went down, I was anger, angry first, fist first, and let things sort out on its own. I had a, a really good friend at that time and a girlfriend, both who which said, hey, I can't hang out with you anymore. I can't be with you anymore because you're too, you're violent too. You hit the walls. You, you throw things. You, you're always angry. Until I found Pastor Baisa and Uncle Joey who I've shared in this church before. And they helped me get back on the straight and narrow. But that's what trauma does to you. Fortunately, I was never introduced to drugs. I probably would have just stayed with it, but I, thank God I did not get into that, that route. Another thought on trauma is that your trauma is not your fault. Most of them, I would believe. I kind of don't agree with this quote because sometimes trauma can be your fault. But trauma is not your fault. But guess what is your responsibility? Healing is your responsibility. Your healing is your responsibility. And this is where the Bible comes in. This is where God comes in. We have to remember that our God is a a God that is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. That's how God can help us to bring our spirit back up. It might take time. It took me from when I was 16 to to 19 or 20 years old. From when I was 20 to 22, that's when my life was put back on the straight and narrow. Thank you, Pastor Baisa. Thank you, Uncle Joey. But in time, God knows how to help you heal that broken spirit. Now, what can we do if we know someone has a broken heart? What can we do if we know someone has, uh, that, that their world has fallen apart? What can we do for them? In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 and 4, it says, The God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that, uh, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. As you read this, you might think, wow, that sounds very redundant. And yeah, it is. Intentionally. (laughs) Intentionally. If we break this down, it tells us the God of what? Of all comfort. Where does comfort come from? God. And how does the verse end? Well, we ourselves have received comfort from God. You could call that redundant. The Bible does that in many different places. It's intentional. This is how the ancient minds wrote. This is how they used to think. 
Because if they are intentionally being redundant, you know what they are intentionally doing? Emphasizing the point. Thank you, Renee. They're emphasizing the point. So what's the point of this verse? The God of comfort comforts you in all the troubles you experience. But it doesn't stop there. Once you receive that comfort, you comfort others who have faced trouble in their life. But once again, emphasizing the point, where can we get the comfort uh, uh, from our troubles? From God. The responsibility is ours to, to seek that healing. As a chaplain, I never rushed anyone to heal. We all heal in different ways, in different time frames. When my wife's cousin died, a young man, how old was Tom? 22, 23? Complications from diabetes. Uh, Bobby's family, the extended family, some were grieving, others were, seemed like they were past it, and then others were telling the other ones who were still grieving, hey, just get over it. No, you can't get over it. You'll have to get over it in time. But with God's comfort, with God's blessings, it's a guaranteed. It's a guaranteed. Brothers and sisters, life can be a soggy mess. It can be a very wet sandwich. But you know what you can do with it? Deconstruct it. Have a salad. Have a salad. Have a salad instead. That's what my brother-in-law did. Let us remember those who have broken hearts in this time of joy and gladness. There are those who are sad, and let us be a comfort to them. Let's pray. Blessed Heavenly Father, thank you for this reminder that while Christmas is to celebrate perhaps the greatest joy of all time, in the birth of your son, there are those who are brokenhearted at this time of year. And so may we take this message to heart and remember those who have been uh, left behind, I guess you can say, left behind because they have suffered loss of a loved one, or perhaps their health has taken a hit, or perhaps someone here has lost a job, May we be empathetic towards one another. May we be compassionate. May we be comforting, just like how you comfort us in our time of need. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.